0: Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Byrd. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Today's conversation touches on some sensitive topics, as the spinners talk with Todd Billings about his cancer and the hope he has in Christ through his prognosis. Though the discussion's heavy, it's worthwhile for us all to hear Todd's story of God's grace in his life. Stay tuned after to find out how to get a free copy of Todd's new book, Rejoicing in Lament.
1: Welcome to another episode of Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. Today we have a very special guest. Um, His name is Todd Billings. He's the... uh, a Professor of uh, Reformed Theology at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, which is a seminary of the Reformed Church in America, uh, in which denomination Todd is, is ordained. He's the author of a number of books, uh, including uh, and a marvelous scholarly volume uh, on Calvin, Participation, and the Gift, published in 2009, which was actually the winner of the John Templeton Award for Theological Promise. The reason we have Todd on the show today is that he is struggling at the moment, suffering with a form of cancer, multiple myeloma, and has written a book about his experience entitled Rejoicing in Lament, Wrestling with Incurable Cancer and Life in Christ. I've had the privilege of reading an advanced copy of this book, and it's it's hard to describe. And on one level, it's a, an extended reflection on uh, the biblical expressions of suffering, particularly as found in in the book of Job and the book of Psalms. On another level, it's a fascinating uh, defense uh, of classical theism and its practical pastoral relevance today on another level, it's a deeply personal and heartfelt memoir of a man reflecting on, on life and existence in the context of, of his family and his, his current illness. Uh, I do recommend that everybody listening should get a copy of this book, read it, and buy another copy to give away to a friend. It is one of the most moving and powerful books I have read for, for many, many years. So Todd, welcome to the show and thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I
1: want to start by asking you a theological question. Uh, you made your name very much as somebody who, who wrote a book on Calvin on union with Christ, and also another book assessing, for, for a more popular audience, contemporary debates about union with Christ. How has your understanding of that doctrine helped you in the circumstances in which you now find yourself?
2: Well, in some ways, having this cancer and having this cancer journey has forced me to face the reality of you know what is really central about my identity and what is really central about my Christian hope. Um, when I first got the news about having this um, incurable cancer and um, decided and, and after sharing it with some family and friends, we shared it with um, my congregation and with seminary community. Um, in all of those contexts, um, we used um, Heidelberg Catechism question and answer one um, and used that before I actually made the announcement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, before you hear these words, the important thing to keep in mind is that our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And this this biblical reality of union with Christ is not penultimate. <laughs> I mean, that's something that kept on coming back to me as I was facing questions about my own mortality and, um, death. Um, it's, this isn't just like something that is holding me on until I get to a better answer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is actually the hope that carries us as Christians all the way through death, um, to participate in the resurrection of Christ to, Have um, union with Christ and communion with the the Triune God, Um, and it's also not a reality that is just up to what I am feeling like. As especially as a cancer patient, you often feel kind of like a lab rat. You know, there's you just get poked hundreds of times, and People are interested in you largely for medical purposes sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, particularly because this is a rare cancer. And so, you know, you're kind of a research subject um, to some extent. And, um, you know, it's the reminder, and really the reminder comes through the means of grace and receiving um, the preached word and the word in sacrament that true life, our true nourishment is in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, all the rest can pretty much wait till tomorrow. I mean, um, yeah, after the diagnosis, a lot of things didn't really seem that important anymore. You know, a lot of even yeah, political debates and things like that. Of course, political debates are important, but it, it focuses you in on um, the center of our Christian hope, and and so, um, I think that theme of of union with Christ has both sustained me and and I've seen new aspects of it, definitely.
3: That's what I loved about your book as I was reading it. I mean, at first you think this book is going to be so good for anyone suffering from a terminal illness or cancer or a pastoral book or for caretakers, but... Um, I, we were talking on email about it and Carl makes the statement that you know you just can't escape the fact that you're staring at your own fate while you're reading this book and i so identified with many of the things you were talking about just in my own regular struggles in life your book really ministered to me as a christian i particularly liked um your chapters on prayer and i uh, i felt like i learned how to pray better after reading your book and um I also really like the chapter on joining the resistance. I thought you said some really um, poignant things that um, kind of put the finger on the evangelical culture now. Um, You discuss the point of compassionate action, and you say the point of compassionate action is not to change the world. It's to be faithful to bear witness in word and deed to a different kingdom, that of King Jesus. As our lips say, thy kingdom come, we pray and act, as revolutionaries who protest against the darkness in this present evil age. I just loved that part because I felt you were kind of identifying there um, about a nurse who was caretaking for young children who had terminal cancer. And she was at her last rope in some ways. Like, I'm not making these, these children's lives any better. And I just, I really loved how you talked about that isn't the, the main point Mm -hmm. that it's Mm -hmm. okay for us to protest and and be angry about what's going on here because things aren't as they should be.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, Could you talk a little bit about just how, um, you know, how our protest is rooted in our ultimate hope and how Christians truly can lament to God and maybe how the Psalms and the book of Job really um, were helpful for you in doing that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Amy. Um, I mean... Prayer was something that was key, certainly for my own response and the community of faith around me, our, um, our response, but also became kind of an urgent theological question. I remember when I went into my stem cell um, transplant, the actually the day that they gave me this um, high-dose chemotherapy that's a derivative of mustard gas, mm-hmm. I had... Um, one big volume by Kevin Van Hooser <laughs> on sort of providence and um, prayer, and a number of actually uh, sort of big books on prayer because they were actually existential <laughs> issues and existential questions. Um, a couple days into it, I actually called one of my two Testament colleagues with a question I had about prayer, and he's got, kind of, Todd, why are you calling me? You're in quarantine. And, but anyway. <laughs> um, um,
3: hey, it's Todd. I'm in quarantine. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> question um, for you I think what I came back to again and again is how central um, the psalms are for prayer and also um, the lord's prayer and and mm-hmm. the cruciform life of Christ are for prayer um, One thing that happens for Christians who have um, a serious illness is that a lot of people pray for you and on the one hand, you really appreciate that. And, you know, I didn't want to be people's theology police in some sense, you know, God can handle (laughs) our imperfect prayers. They're Mm -hmm. taken up, um, into the petitions of Jesus Christ. All of our prayers are imperfect, but it is true that, that sometimes the prayers of others made me feel more alienated Mm -hmm. and, we um, were actually not an encouragement, and I think some of what it went back to was um, um, a lot of times when we pray, we seem to assume that really what the Christian life is all about is that God owes us a comfortable middle class lifestyle to and you know a lifespan that lives until age eighty five or or something like that and um so they're wanting to pray for that to be fixed, that to be, you know, restored. And often there's a sort of a confidence in their own confidence in prayer. You know, if, if I'm really confident, then God will do this. Mm-hmm. And um, especially with an incurable illness, it's a little bit more like praying for someone who has lost a limb, um, whose
3: yeah, I like that know, arm has been
2: amputated. Um, there is a loss, um, there is a loss no matter what happens. And, um, and so some of what um, the, the Psalms um, have been, it's, it's really the Psalms and the life of Christ sort of held together, which are key there because with, with both of them, you, be, you bring both your grief and your protest before the Lord in trust of God's covenant promise. It's precisely because you trust in God's covenant promise that you wrestle <laughs> with right. God and the covenant promise. It's not because you think you can fix the world and make everybody's you know, life happy that you Pray and seek to be compassionate um, in, in in suffering, but it's 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 actually living into who we are as people who trust in um, the, the the promise of God. That um, you know, precisely because we have both trust and we know that although God is King, the kingdom is still coming, <laughs> and so. When we have a compassionate action that seems utterly useless in terms of utility, um, that's a that's that's a sign of the kingdom of God in a certain sense. I mean, it's a sign right. of what the church is actually called to. the The church is not supposed to look just like an um, a self improvement society, but we're we're the we're, we should be the sort of people who waste our time and energy on, on people who the world doesn't care about. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's some of what I was, I was trying to get at there. Todd, uh,
4: Carl and I are both pastors in local churches, and both of us have brothers and sisters in our churches who are struggling with cancer and various other kinds of chronic um illness and pain um what are the most helpful things that a church body can do for those within their fellowship who are struggling with the kinds of things that you're struggling with whether it be cancer or some other very serious chronic health issues what what are the best things we can do for those brothers and sisters
2: yeah um it's a good question todd um I mean, I say, I think the first thing is—it sounds simple, but is kind of um, counterintuitive to to some people, and that is just to first to listen to what um, the people themselves say their needs are, um, and what they want to have um, prayed for, um, how others can help to bear their burdens, um, for. For our family, for example, when I was diagnosed, our kids were um, one and three. Um, and, you know, I was diagnosed and the next week I started in- intensive chemotherapy. So hmm. um, very quick transition. And we really needed a lot of babysitting help just for me to even make it to my appointments. Hmm. Um, and also uh, driving um and in, in a certain sense, um, I mean, it was hard at first for me to let other people help me. I mean, I'm a seminary right. professor and yeah. different things. But um, I realized that that was part of how God was going to work through this as well. And so there were retired folks, especially in our in my church, who would give me rides um, to chemotherapy. And they loved it. I mean, you know, they, they, they love to serve in that way and, um, you know, various various ways like that. Um, and also, in a sense, because we're a community that follows in Jesus Christ in the shadow of the cross, be open to the way that even the person who's suffering can minister to others. Mm. Like, be open to how... Such a good point. Um, because nobody wants to just be the needy person. Nobody wants to be just defined by their cancer or their illness. Um, and so um, in, in circumstances like that, there's a lot of mutual and reciprocal ministry that happens. So um, I'm blessed to be part of a multi-generational church where, you know, there were especially um, folks who, um, in their older folks who had gone through chemotherapy, some who had lost a spouse to cancer and things like that. And they were actually so helpful to me. And you could tell that that was also a gift to them (laughs) to be able to, to, to help me. And, um, so it, it can be a very mutual, um, thing. Um, so I guess if I have any, um, just general warning of what's maybe not quite so helpful when, when people respond. And this, this kind of struck me off guard. I wasn't realizing that people would respond this way, but, um, very frequently when uh, people found out that I had cancer, the first response was along the lines of free associating the sense of like, Oh, well, my brother just died of cancer or, Oh, oh, uh, or on the other hand, oh, my mom's been in remission for 12 years. And actually, neither of those are helpful. And so, I mean, in some sense, um, when you're a cancer patient and you make your news public, you just have to get used to that. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not personally offended when Mm -hmm. people do that. Um, But... um,
3: You were particularly helpful in the book, too, about how we could better pray. Yeah. For, for those with cancer or for you in particular in the experiences you were going through some of the things that people said that they were praying for um, and like you said you didn't want to be the theology police but um, you know when someone said I'm, I'm praying for your total healing you had a different answer
2: yeah yeah and it was kind of strange because I, I actually did have people really push back sometimes when, mm-hmm. I, when they ask me what to pray for and I Told them to pray for a deep remission, um, and um, and the response was like, "Well, don't you have faith that God could bring total healing?" Um, and and then we're sort of on the verge of a medical explanation, <laughs> in the sense. So, I mean, some of what I explain in the book is that you know, with a cancer like this, it is um, it is expected. To come back, um, so I mean the the median lifespan for a patient at my stage of cancer is five to seven years. Um, now I am much younger than many patients um, who get this, um, but that sometimes helps and it sometimes doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I've already had you know another patient who I knew my age pass away um, you know and and he was diagnosed the same time as me. Mm -hmm. So it's the sort of thing that, you know, say, for example, I had no detectable cancer levels. Um, They do all their tests, and I had no cancer levels, like after my stem cell transplant. I would still need to be on maintenance chemotherapy, which gives a fair number of side effects, um, for the rest of my life, Um, Mm -hmm. unless something dramatic you know, and the medical field changes because they expect it to come back. In other words, there's a loss either way. And so right. um, in some sense, you know, when you pray in your closet, <laughs> you can pray for me however you want. <laughs> uh, but um, insofar as prayer itself is, is part of our, action as brothers and sisters in Christ and bearing each other's burdens um, being being in denial about the loss isn't helpful okay. right. um, and so I mean I've, I've had a friend who had a different medical um, issue that she was processing and it was from an x-ray and then you know they were going to find out the result and repeatedly her friends you know said well don't worry you know the x-rays can be wrong and mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was again Isn't not not a helpful yeah. Um, yeah.
1: response. Mm. So, bit of a gear change here, Todd. Um, <laughs> one of the things that that most struck me about your book, and indeed this is reflected in in the article you have in December's edition of First Things, was your stout. I won't say defense because that implies that you were being defensive about it, but your your stout promotion of Classical theism as mm-hmm. being pastorally very important. Now, a lot of people say, you know, the, the impassable God of classical Christianity, it's Greek philosophy. It's not a God who can connect with us in our suffering. You make a diametrically opposed case to that. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about why you are absolutely committed to, to classical theism as a practical? pastoral theology
2: Mm -hmm. yeah i think you're you're exactly right in in your stating of what i was doing and it really wasn't a, a, a defense in the sense of just you know feeling like i was on the defensive but um more an exposition of how it can be profoundly helpful and pastoral and um For me, the central issue as I worked um, through this process and in a sense, writing the book was part of my own theological processing was when I wrestled with um, key, when I wrestled with scripture and was attentive to the way in which scripture wants to reframe our questions, then the categories of classical theism become extremely helpful. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, um, as as Amy noted, there's um, quite a bit in the book on um, the book of Job and the book of Psalms. And some of what those are key, key for me on is that they both... Um, They both deal with God and suffering. And they're very clear in some sense about what we do know and what we can trust. And that is we can trust in the power and the goodness of God. Um, But they're also quite clear about what we don't know. Mm -hmm. We, We don't know why in the Psalms, the enemies are triumphing, why evil seems to be triumphing. We don't know why you know, God's promise doesn't look like or feel like it's coming to fulfillment. And in some ways, the whole setup of the book of Job with these two levels of action, the one level and the divine counsel um, where, you know, we know from, um, from this that Job is a righteous person who's not being, he's not being punished for his un- unrighteousness um, through all of the suffering that he undergoes. Yet, when Job, you know, makes his plea and, you know, presents his case um, before the Lord, um, the response is, you know, where were you <laughs> when I created the world? Which is, which is really a way of saying, I am God and you are not. <laughs> it's a remarkably
1: unpastoral response. Right.
2: Yeah, in, in some sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, there that, that is the limits of human wisdom and so it seems to me that you know occasionally i've seen people come to some of the categories of classical theism and um misunderstand some of the providential categories such that they think that they give all the answers. Um, mm-hmm. So, okay, you know, once we have our distinctions in place and we talk about the sovereign reign of God, then suffering shouldn't be an issue and you don't really need to lament. Right. And I actually turn that on. Its, I, I say this is not a healthy way to inhabit that, yes. that the classical Christian tradition is a way to live to keep praying the book of Psalms, to keep praying the laments, to live in light of the book of Job, whereas a lot of the more modern revisionist attempts are really attempting to answer the questions that um, Job says is beyond human wisdom. Mm -hmm. Um, attempting to give a reason why, such as, you know, God wasn't powerful enough to stop this or God wasn't good enough to stop this. Whereas for if, if you're really inhabiting the biblical narrative, those are open questions Mm -hmm. like you, you leave it to God. You, you continue to both lament and trust and hope in this God who is almighty and good. And you, um, You don't try to come up with the reasons, and so um, it's a different way. Uh, Sometimes people have said about classical theism, you know, when they say, you know, they don't they don't know why, you know, God would permit evil. Um, I mean, there's different ways of not knowing, and um, (laughs) I think what classical theism gets right with this is that the Bible the Bible doesn't just say Um, you know, we don't happen to have the information about, Hmm. you know, why God would allow um, something. But but it's, it's it's a much more profound thing that um, on a normative level, scripture tells us in various genres, such as in the Psalms and in the book of Job. And um, I discuss also lament in the New Testament and these trajectories in the New Testament and really culminating with Jesus Christ um, and his cry of dereliction, um, which I work with in the chapter that Carl was mentioning. That's great. So, um, in a sense, um, the classical Christian tradition gives us a way to inhabit the biblical narrative with its mysteries rather than um, interrogating it so that it makes a God in our own image. Great way, great way of putting it and especially when you're facing death, you really know when you've made a God in your own image. And that's mm. not satisfying. Mm. You 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 know an idol when you see it staring back at you. Wow. And so, um, and so I mean I struggle with it in the book in the sense that like, you know, do I do I wish that the book of Job and even the life of Christ would have given like some great Answer to the theology theodicy question in a sense of a theoretical answer. I mean, it's it, it's it's a struggle <laughs> to to have this as um, a mystery in in some sense, but it's not it's not just a blank slate type mystery. It's the mystery that we live in as people who live in hope in God's promise um, that um, that Christ's kingdom will come in fullness, and we. And in in word and sacrament, um, in the we we have signs of Christ's kingdom um, right now. But this is this is not the way things are supposed to be. There's we're still in an already, uh, you know, of the kingdom, but but uh, uh, not yet.
4: Right, right. That's um, that's helpful, Todd. In fact, I, I mean, the, the discussion has been helpful, and we could. I'm sure go on uh, for quite a time, but we're we're really glad that you took time uh, to uh, to spend with us. Um, obviously, as as we've as we've made clear, as you have been so helpful in talking about um, what's going on in your life, uh, it, it's uh, it's not easy for you to uh, to take time for certain activities like this. You're you're in the midst of the of the battle physically right now, so to speak, and so we're really grateful. That you took time to talk with us about um, something that really, really matters. As Carl mentioned earlier, uh, those of you that are listening, um, Todd is is the author of some very helpful and highly regarded books. A couple of them dealing with doctrine of union with Christ. One I can personally vouch for, entitled "Union with Christ: Reframing Theology and Ministry for the Church." Very helpful book. Um, but his most recent title, the one that we've been chatting with him about, "Rejoicing and Lament." Wrestling with Incurable Cancer and Life in Christ by Todd Billing. If, if you get a chance, please uh, get that book. I, th- I think Carl's right in saying get a couple of copies to give to people uh, as it will be very, very helpful for them. So, Todd, thank you so much for taking time uh, to be with us. Um, you've, you've been helpful for us and I know helpful in the lives of a lot of people who are going to be uh, listening in on this.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us for uh, Mortification of Spin today, uh, conversation about things that count, and uh, we trust that this has been a, a good and encouraging time for you today.
0: Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold to the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. We have a few copies of Todd Billings' book, Rejoicing in Lament, Wrestling with Incurable Cancer and Life in Christ. If you'd like to enter to win a copy, visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. Can't wait to have you back next week, and until then, here's a little teaser to hold you over.
1: The purpose of this program is really to, to offer some reflections on, on Lord's Day observance in contemporary culture, which is something that uh, has really, I think, disappeared in recent decades. Uh, Carl, uh, I mean, of
0: all of the Christian rappers out there, who would you say is your favorite? We'll see you next week. And don't forget to stop by mortificationofspin.org to enter the book giveaway.
3: So Carl and Todd... Did you guys color coordinate st- for today and not tell me? We just instinctively I'm stylish. Exactly. exactly. Instinctively stylish. <laughs> instinctively I'm not stylish. buying it. Not buying it.
4: <laughs>